Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, episode 113, The Triangle of Mindfulness. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello, my name is Dr. Michael Smith, and today I'm doing a solo podcast on mindfulness. This is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. And I'm just going to dive right in, because mindfulness is probably the most accessible, powerful, easily applicable tool that I can think of that would help almost anyone, if not pretty much everyone. The practice of mindfulness as we kind of understand it today is basically a meditative awareness that has nothing to do with religion or spiritual practice. It has to do with the fundamental wisdom and common sense that if you can not react to or be led around by your thoughts, your emotions, your reactions to you know the daily experiences we have bumping into each other in the world, If you're not going to react to those experiences and experience them as just experiences and choose to invest your awareness in what's going on around you and within you and obviously invest most of your awareness in what brings you the most satisfaction or success or ease or peace or rest or whatever it is you're actually choosing to do with yourself in the moment. Now that sounds like some common sense, uh, I think, but... The distinction between being aware of many thoughts and feelings and stories and narratives and perhaps repetitive tracks uh, of meaning in your life that in a way kind of take over your perceptual self. They change what it is you notice around you. If you're having a really negative day and you're somehow triggered to the risk of being bitten by an animal, you know, maybe you're walking down the street and someone has a dog and that completely overwhelms your perceptual awareness because at this point that seems like the most important thing to actually pay attention to and respond to and control in some way. And Perhaps that's the real fundamental difference um, with a mindfulness practice is even if we're really planning in a kind of like action item list step by step um, you know, way of planning your next week or something like that. There's an a- aspect of that behavior that is about trying to control how successful you are with applying yourself to your schedule and your chores, which is a good thing to be able to do. And I wouldn't suggest that that's in any way a bad idea. It's just noticing that a big part of what the mind is doing most of the time is trying to control outcomes and trying to control the possibility of anything that's threatening from actually harming you. And that's just instinct and a really good part of the mind. However, that crafty bit of being human that says, you know, if we can make a good list and make a good plan and really identify the threat and control every aspect of that part of our life, we'll be safer and we'll be obviously in control and perhaps in some way believe that we're more successful. And again, that's not a a false equation, but it does bring uh, an almost tantalizingly addictive opportunity into our lives, which is, 
I wonder if I can finally come up with a really clear way to say in my mind how I feel about romantic love. So if I ever have to talk about that, I have that way of thinking about it and saying it and feeling it in my life really clear in my mind. Because perhaps you're a person who is really very deeply affected by that part of life, and it's a thing that's on your mind a lot. Another thing that's probably more common for people is to try and figure out money and debts and uh, things like that. The next probably most common thing we do with our talking mind is to try and make sure that we're fitting in in some way. You know, not in a sense of just being popular, but in, in the sense of making sure our primary relationships are something we think about. And that's, again, a survival strategy, but it can also bring up that part of us that likes to be in control. And sometimes the way we control things is to move into a mind-body-emotion uh, orientation or disorientation. So it could be money or your sex life or your relationship with politics, but almost like the pointer on a compass, each of us tends to kind of rush to a certain state of being, a certain psycho-emotional stance, a certain political stance a certain degree of uh, expectation or impatience, uh, perhaps a tendency to be judgmental or manipulative or to just lie. So there's a lot of ways that we've learned, most of us have in some way, to control outcomes. So hopefully that covers most of the things that uh, people do, and I hope at least one of them touches you in some way. Because if there's really a point to mindfulness, it's choosing to notice what you're trying to control and then giving yourself a moment to trust who you really are and to trust that as a mindful person, being in control is actually uh, uh, kind of an overuse, if not a misuse, of what attention is. Because if I'm hyper-focused on redoing my monthly finances for the 300th time today, that's 299 times that amount of time I could have been noticing the world, noticing the people that I'm actually noticing, perhaps really tasting the food that, uh, you know, you're eating. And that's, that's the common sense and the beautiful gift of a mindfulness practice is you actually just get tired of, you know, in, in perhaps a fundamentally spiritual way, or perhaps ethically tired of that misuse of your conscious existence. Now, that's a may seem like a pretty heavy thing to say, but that that's the that that's really the wealth of your life in the context of mindfulness is how much of your life are you actually experiencing and how completely are you actually experiencing it? And perhaps how conscious are you of the choices you have and the profound meaningfulness and beauty of life? It's just one layer of attention away from you all of the time. So that gives you, a, I guess, hopefully a sense of the you know, perspective mindfulness practice has and some of the benefits that people get from it. And as a person myself who's been involved in meditation and Qigong and martial arts, that all, in a way, require a similar economy of attention and not being distracted. Um, and being more invested in the felt sense present moment than uh, many other parts of my life. So when I reflect on those parts of my life and how that relates to mindfulness, 
There's a quote that I really love to share with people. If you're skilled in mindfulness or meditation, you will develop the ability to choose where your attention goes every time and any time that you need to. Now, that's pretty much common sense, but I would say that if there was anything that's important that I would uh, attempt to impress on any other person in my life if I was having this kind of a conversation with them, it would be that. If you can develop the skill of choosing where your attention goes, you are free. You are free in the way that philosophers and gurus and spiritual teachers speak of being free because you've invested in that kind of economy of attention and economy of consciousness through being mindful. So this podcast is called The Triangle of Mindfulness because I have a, a fairly easy to remember and also potent tool for helping people be fairly honest with themselves about what it is that they're experiencing in a mindfulness practice and what choices are most common uh, for each of us and more importantly what that particular choice or that particular instinct really means and how we can utilize that authentically and honestly to move ahead with our mindfulness practice instead of have uh, a sense of dissatisfaction with it. So let's take a moment and just uh, imagine that we're looking towards the horizon and you see what looks kind of like a pyramid in the distance and as you really focus in on looking at that pyramid, it looks like a triangle, but you notice that it's kind of like a Mayan pyramid in the sense that it's uh, at a distance looks like it has stairs going uphill on the left towards the middle and then downhill on the right towards the right side. So just imagine that as our mindfulness triangle. And at the base of this triangle is a context that I think in the modern world we would call Zen or a pure perceptive awareness of being without any interference or distraction um, in any way. On the uphill side, the left side of our triangle is an acknowledgement that sometimes in a mindfulness practice or just getting through a day, we're kind of walking uphill doing a certain kind of work. And in the mindfulness practice context, that work would be called conscious processing. And there's a lot of tools that, that come, uh, can be brought into our lives that can actually really help us with that. On the right side of our triangle is the stairs going downhill. And that's meant to remind us that things can get easier. And the quality that relates most to that uh, part of the mindfulness triangle is the experience of discernment or a kind of confidence with your awareness and your, what you might call your spiritual or ethical or overall compassionate kind of judgment where you know what is really valuable to keep your attention on and you're becoming quite aware of what it is that's no longer really valuable to keep your attention on. So I'm going to come back to each of these sides of the triangle uh, in a bit, but I also want to bring to your awareness I mean this, I guess, with some humor, but I want to bring to your awareness the three different ways that your attention can be in, in, instinctually kind of hijacked uh, in different ways. It's not really technical, but it is a little bit of a geek out. So there's three words that you're going to learn or we're going to need to share for a bit. 
One of them is called your orienting reflex, and that's basically like the nose of a dog. It's the part of your attention that's always looking to smell things that might be good and fun to chew on, or things that might actually be a problem, like, say, a bigger animal. And that orienting reflex is fundamentally a very powerful instinct, and it's always on. It kind of comes and goes in the sense of threshold. It's about every two minutes for most people where you notice your attention naturally chooses to just bring your awareness or your memory to, oh yeah, that's the thing I'm trying to avoid happening next, and this is the thing that I want to make sure I'm doing next. There's really no way you can be conscious and functional in the world without an orienting reflex. It's quite likely that everything down to, you know, microbes have some version of that. So um, that's obviously going to have a big impact on what mindfulness uh, is really about. Metacognition is, uh, I think, best described as a searchlight if your mind was, say, some kind of a, a castle or a courtyard. And that flashlight or the searchlight just moves around checking to make sure you're aware of what it is that you've been thinking about in the sense of memory. And you're aware of how patient or impatient you're feeling with respect to the part of your mind that's planning. And you're aware of how much maybe your internal dialogue or the part of your mind that rehearses the list of things you're wanting to think about or the people you're thinking about or... Uh, just that natural conversation we all have all of the time. So metacognition is basically how your mind chooses to pay attention to what your mind's actually doing. What happens to a lot of us who are living really an animal experience or a, a consistently dynamic external internal response uh, kind of driven experience, if we spend a lot of time uh, sitting down and just, you know, thinking or watching a screen where we're, we're not really even invested in what we're watching. There's just that natural kind of rumination. When people have a certain amount of distress in their lives, uh, especially if they've experienced a lot of trauma, that metacognition is going to be, uh, in a way, hijacked by your orienting reflex. Because the biggest uh, survival strategy you may have in your life is again focusing on controlling how you feel, how other people feel about you, how you feel about them in the sense of a more social survival strategy as an example. You could be just obsessing about money or politics or aliens, it doesn't really matter. What's important is that your orienting reflex is now jumping back and forth between plans and memories inside your mind and is not really as invested in being aware of the outside world. And that creates the condition for what we call looping, where basically your metacognition and your orienting reflex have hijacked your conscious attention to keep bouncing back and forth between things you're uh, thinking about and things you remember and the plans you're making to you know, solve whatever you're trying to solve, because that's mostly what the mind is doing. And then we have our implicit memory. And implicit memory is best described, and I apologize for this metaphor, but it's a very powerful one because it's, well, you'll see in a minute. The best metaphor for what implicit memory is, is to imagine that you are now the owner of a brand new puppy, and you have to train that puppy, especially in the next six months, but still to some degree over the next two years. 
And however you communicate with your puppy about uh, boundaries, about what's okay and not okay in the house, and what's okay or not okay around the dinner table, uh, how to play as a good puppy in a park around other strange animals, and what to do about cats, and you know what chew toys are, and what expensive shoes are, and all the other things that you need to do with a puppy. And over that, you know, six months to two years, that animal's implicit memory of boundaries, of safety, of collaboration, of survival, getting its uh, needs met, its uh, social and emotional needs, as well as just getting fed, uh, as well as the need to be curious and playful and uh, run around hopefully a couple of miles a day. That's why implicit memory matters, because that's how we all learn to adapt to our environment. Now, human beings are not puppies, but sometimes we're raised in a way that's a lot worse than, I think, the way most people would even be willing to treat an animal. And, again, I apologize to bring that quality of, you know, human nature into your mind, but many of us who've experienced trauma, uh, the more physical, the more sexual, the more profound it is in the sense of disorientation, uh, often the more it has to do with uh, being accepted socially, um, especially by our parents. There are so many little things, or really big things, that have to do with how we are trained and socialized in our childhoods. And we've all been through high school, uh, for the most part, and we all remember what that was like. So depending on how you were socialized or traumatized as a person or both, that's going to fundamentally change your implicit memory of you and how you fit into the world. So when it comes to the experience of mindfulness, the real work on the left side of the triangle is beginning with your implicit memory and going through the natural process as you sit in a mindfulness practice or walk or lie down or lift weights or whatever you like to do. Mindfulness isn't really about a, a core meditative practice. It's more about being aware that you can always be aware of your awareness. So for really being honest, if our, you know, if you're a person who has experienced trauma or a lot of distress, your mindfulness practice should naturally start at the low corner of the left side of your triangle where implicit memory kind of sits. And you may want to begin investing in some of those practices you know, that most people would reach for to become more connected and coherent in a mind-body, emotion, uh, felt sense kind of way. Uh, it's no surprise to me that things like yoga, qigong, tai chi, martial arts, uh, things like that that have so much to do with coherence and adaptability and being embodied and being present are so popular and actually necessary in the world now. Because that's mostly where people who are still wound up in some way or still uncomfortable in some way are going to find a natural process and a conscious process to become more comfortable within their own body and within their feelings and within their life. So we need to have processes. Now I can also speak uh, maybe momentarily about this idea of having implicit memory um, but you weren't traumatized, you don't feel like you had a really bad childhood, you don't feel like you've lived in a profound amount of distress. 
I'd bet even money, if that's an expression, that you still have an implicit memory because you've still been trained like a puppy in the sense that you've adapted to the world in the ways that you have, and those adaptations work. And they work as long as you maintain them as uh, a path or as truth. And this is where it gets kind of fun, perhaps, at the middle higher side of the left side of this triangle, when you're not really focused so much on conscious processing but you're, you know, deep enough into your mindfulness practice or your meditation that you're really getting to be familiar with the, the way the compass needle of your mind works. That implicit memory that, you know, always makes you look at what you're looking at a certain way. And that's really the, and that's really the transition going from having attention that's controlled by implicit memory to embracing that implicit memory and how it really is occupying your orienting reflex in the sense of what you're trying to control with your attention or within your world. Because when you trust yourself in the mindfulness sense to be aware of your awareness and aware of your responses and aware of the urge to have reactions but choosing to be mindful instead, now you've regained, you could say, the autonomy of your orienting reflex. You're, you're now kind of walking past the apex of the triangle and beginning the gentle, slow, and maybe eventually quite fast and fun downhill slide back into the baseline of being mindful. So now that you have a, you know, you're walking down the stairs on the, the right side of your triangle, aware that at any moment you could be triggered and find yourself back into some conscious processing, then you basically on that right side of the triangle have the chance to choose what are the two ways your nose can go. You know, is the orienting reflex of mindfulness in this way identifying thoughts that you have positive or negative feelings about? Is it choosing to avoid listening to your internal dialogue as you say mantras or affirmations? There's a lot of different ways for us to respond to the attempt to control our orienting reflex by choosing the good and the bad. And that's not good or bad. <laughs> it's just to notice that that's a certain quality because there's another quality of your orienting reflex that doesn't really have to do with judgment or opinion. It has to do with an inherent trust of mindfulness, an inherent trust of what you might call wisdom so if you are given, uh, let's say, a special kind of plant medicine and the only thing that you could do for the next six hours is to sit in a profound state of attention with the kind of discernment of someone with decades of experience of really looking at the truth. Say a, a psychologist with four decades of sitting in a room really talking to people about just the good and bad parts of life but you've trained this profound discernment, part lie detector, part Buddha. And maybe I'll describe that more precisely, because discernment would have kind of a quality of appreciation and patience, you know, the way we would want to pay attention to that puppy, because there's an appreciation of the truth. But discernment also asks us to be aware that there's a compassionate but forceful kind of judgment that says I will no longer maintain the dysfunction that's going on in this 
by returning my attention to that appreciative, authentic kind of discernment, and then finding the middle ground to move through the conscious experience more consciously. Because now we're learning to lean in with our orienting reflex and be discerning about what it is that the quality of our metacognition and our orienting reflex are going to choose to be with respect to anything that arises outside of us and anything that arises within us. And this discernment is, from a wisdom teaching point of view, meant to lean towards an experience of equanimity or a lack of judgment and opinion and complaint and uh, ego and uh, all the things that are just instinctual on that level of, again, trying to control outcome. This discernment that has an innate tendency towards an equanimity of truth and patience and compassion really does need to lean in with the compassion towards whatsoever, whatever it is that's arriving from within you and whatever it is that's arriving within your life around you. And compassion doesn't mean it's all good, go ahead and do whatever you want. Compassion is a way of feeling whatever pain is at the center of behavior. And that's sort of the truth of a certain part of Buddhism is if you can actually bring profound compassion and discernment and patience and wisdom and equanimity to the truth of a certain behavior and the pain within that behavior that drives the behavior, now you're the kind of metacognition and the kind of orienting reflex that is fundamentally more interested in experiencing the moment, the truth of the moment, the truth of life, and uh, whatever it is that the poets and the philosophers and the gurus and the wisdom teachers have been trying to remind us about, you know, every time we pick up those kinds of books. And I'm saying this because I, I'm attempting to inspire you to not only the challenging healing opportunities of mindfulness, but also the profound truth and, and almost common sense of a lot of what wisdom is really about. Because mindfulness, if you can maintain your practice, will regain your autonomy of your experience as a conscious being. It will afford you the capacity to become coherent anytime you need to be profoundly responsive in the world in whatever way that you would need to, be that physical or emotional or uh, just being clear on a really important conversation. I like to think of the right side of the pyramid in a way as kind of like a stair, but maybe an escalator that once you're on it and you've had enough kind of go times around the triangle, if you will, that you feel uh, not an effortlessness, but a trust within yourself and within your capacity to be patient and discerning and compassionate. At a certain point of practice, and I can't tell anyone how long that would take, I think it's unique to every person, that becomes your go-to response to the world, is I just need to go down the stairs from the reactive self towards the adaptive, autonomous, collaborative, you know, connected and adaptable self. And then you hit that, you know, well, hit probably isn't the right word, but 
you enter into that vast space of what we call the Zen experience. So I'm just going to go around this triangle one more time and focus on some fun and useful and symbolic uh, practicable things that we see uh, depending on which side of the triangle that we're looking at. So if we're going to look at the base of this triangle, this horizontal line that symbolizes the connection between the sky and the soil or heaven and earth in some mystical sense of reunion of the separate, that describes a pretty profound state of equanimity and uh, liveness and attention that I think anyone who aspires to spiritual practice, uh, a fundamental truth of being, um, that's in a way an entryway or a doorway into experiencing that more precisely or uh, tangibly, which is an amazing thing to know is possible, even if you never decide to find out what it's like. This is a strange example, um, but it does bring, I think, our imagination to something and hopefully our humor to something. Uh, because when you look at the training some schools of Zen use, um, and the one that comes to my mind always is the image of someone, you know, perhaps in a martial arts uh, uh, gi or a kimono of some kind, and they're in a beautiful temple in Japan, and they're in a deep meditation, and the sun is coming through the window, and whatever other poetic things I can think of. But their teacher is sneaking up behind them with a bamboo sword, and this is kind of like a Zen test in, in a certain school of Zen where the teacher will hit you about the, you know, shoulders mostly. And one, you're not supposed to flinch, but more importantly, you're supposed to stay in the zazen, that seated, profound, uh, coasting, floating, profoundly uh, present kind of attention and perception. And uh, I've trained with some teachers who have that kind of a sense of humor or uh, encourage people to be that profoundly, I guess, connected to staying present no matter what arises. There's another part of me that perhaps comes from the more Taoist side of things that feels like that's trying to control the part of your mind that you're trying to control that not controlling what you usually control. Anyway, that, that was fun to say, but... It is a really good example, though, of the way we project the Zen experience uh, into our imagination of some, you know, completely uninterruptible, profound kind of, uh, profound kind of disciplined awareness. And why not? The other side of that, uh, of course, is those of us who aspire to that as a, a kind of truth force who do not have the decades to go and train in monasteries in Asia or something, will naturally have this negative encounter with, with, with it or perhaps a more egoic attachment. Uh, either way, because it means something uh, symbolically more than the invitation to go deep towards that experience right now. Because from the Zen experience, it's always right now. For myself, when I find myself on the left side of the triangle, working up the stairs of whatever I find myself needing to process, and one of those people who feels embarrassed saying, yeah, I've been meditating for 40 years, and it's only been recently, perhaps, that I've really come to a place of 
feeling confident about speaking to the experience. And uh, I only bring that up because I do not expect for the rest of my life to be free of having to process things when new things come into my life or new ways of reminding me about old things, you know, keep happening in my life. So if there's a part of you listening to this that is hoping to be in control of what you have to control by, you know, some magical mind force, uh, maybe I'm just really bad at this, but I've never found that. So <laughs> just wanted to share that. So practical ways that I've experienced that I would encourage people to get into as you're climbing the stairs of the conscious processing opportunity would be things like Qigong and yoga and Tai Chi and martial arts, uh, sensory deprivation tanks, um, working with psychedelic plants, but specifically when you're working with someone with at least a decade's experience who's in the room with you guiding the experience in some way. Um, just because there's more benefit to using things that alter consciousness if you have a guide, unless you become skillful enough perhaps to guide yourself. Embodied practices that have a lot to do with the way we hold on to trauma in our nervous system are profoundly beneficial for anyone working through a conscious processing experience because mindfulness is about your narrative. It's also about your state. And if your state of somatic awareness or you know the way you've remembered traumatic experiences in your nerves and muscles has enough intensity at any given moment, that's gonna control your narrative. It's going to bring up your implicit memory and that's going to change what's important to metacognition and that's going to reorient what you do with your orienting reflex because as an animal you've been trained to be a very very reactive puppy perhaps as an example and that's in your nervous system more than it's in your narrative so again things that have to do with embodied practice but specifically somatic therapies um, there's a lot of them available. Uh, the practice I do is called Somatic Mindfulness Process. It's actually something I'll be teaching in the next year. But anything that you can think of or have access to in your life that would be a process that en encourages and requires uh, a real application of mindfulness and awareness and trust and forgiveness and the risk of you know allowing truths to surface that maybe have been necessarily buried for a while, or perhaps a long time. Using uh, the technology of breathwork, and I describe it as a technology because it's better to be trained very thoroughly and effectively in that. It may only take you a few months to really acquire the kind of uh, kung fu, if you will, of properly you know, trained breathwork. There's a lot of uh, fun things out there now that encourage people to focus mostly on hyperventilating. And I think there's a lot of other aspects of breathwork. And in fact, I'll do a podcast on the physiology and neurology of breathwork uh, probably in a few weeks. But breathwork is a profound uh, resource for going through any kind of processing because it brings up the opportunity to release embodied trauma through the conscious application of mindfulness, through the conscious application of breathing in very specific ways, which keep you very present, but also meddle around with your neurochemistry enough that shift your state enough that may give you confidence to be um, 
at least available to the, the possibility that you could be free of some trauma and some memory and some distress and perhaps even some chronic pain and uh, not to go too far into the geek out stuff but the effect that somatic awareness, breath work, embodied practices have on chronic illness, inflammation and pain are uh, unbelievable in, in a way but very very powerful. So if you don't feel like going to a monastery and sitting on a cushion waiting for your teacher to sneak up behind you and walk you on the head, um, then I'm sure you'll find other really beautiful ways to practice for the base of your triangle. I uh, hope you have uh, access to or already have learned some of the practices I've described to help you walk up the stairs anytime you have some processing to do. And when I bring my awareness to the right side of the triangle in the most practical way, the most potent image that comes to my mind is basically a seated, standing, walking, lying, but stillness-oriented meditation practice, even if it's only a few minutes a day. Uh, although I would encourage anyone to go out of their way to go on a retreat, uh, say a 10-day retreat or something, to really kind of sharpen the teeth and claws or uh, widen the embrace and the welcoming hug of what your attention really uh, needs to know that it can do. Mindfulness is a skill, very much like a martial arts uh, kind of technique or a martial art in itself would be a skill. Mindfulness is an opportunity to adapt to the world in a fundamentally more potent and present and perhaps meaningful way, but it's a practice. It's not just a perspective. And the more you hopefully are willing to commit some time and effort with your life to develop that skill, I'm certain that you will get the benefit from taking the time and applying yourself to something that powerful and free. So I'm going to leave you with just sort of a strange but uh, quick metaphor for maybe another way to see this or to just leave this in your mind as an image, you know, if you're still trying to decide if mindfulness really matters. Imagine that you and I are walking through a building and the power is out and that between us we have one flashlight. And every time we hear a noise or something that sounds like a rat, or maybe if you're afraid of zombies, it's a zombie movie. Both of us are going to be in a hurry to point the flashlight, the symbol of our attention, towards the biggest threat. So again, that's your orienting reflex, but that's the nature of what it's like to be vigilant, to be hypervigilant, to be more focused on the what than on what it is that's focusing. That's a highly reactive, impatient, insecure, uh, controlled, dominant kind of experience. Because that would be the only instinctual thing you could do if you were walking through a scary building with someone and there was only one flashlight. So in no way is that a judgment of that experience. It's a compassionate, discerning appreciation of what most of us are doing most of the time with our attention. Imagine if you and I were to be sitting in this building, but sitting in a room 
and instead of pointing the flashlight all over the place, one of us decided to make the big revolutionary gesture of lighting a candle. Because this light, the symbol of what it is to be conscious attention, is now willing to see everything, 360 degrees by 360 degrees, in space and time. And that's what mindfulness is really asking us to return to, is the profoundly welcoming, including curious and playful volume of attention that all animals have most of the time, most of their life. The humans in our economy of busyness believe that we have to give away to get more or to get away from things we don't want any more of. Sometimes that's true, but it's definitely not always true. I hope this has given you a sense of encouragement and perhaps more importantly a sense of honesty and being realistic with the amount of patience it takes for you to really get the, the experience, the state, the transformational confidence of being pure attention for a while. You know, of committing to your practice to see what happens. Some days are stairs, some days feel like a water slide or an escalator. Sometimes you feel like you're at the place of unity of all things. If you're a person who aspires to a monastic or a spiritual or an ethical kind of consciousness, especially one of compassion, then I direct you to your cushion or your bench or your uh, training hall to go and go and use your time to apply yourself to the best economy that there is in life, which is the more you apply your consciousness to what attention is, the more free and potent and playful and powerful you really are in your life. And if you're fundamentally curious what it is that's behind the curtain of whatever it is the thinking mind really is, And welcome to the journey of just unraveling all the layers of the onion of consciousness. And perhaps there is a final layer, perhaps there is a curtain to look behind. But the only way any of us is going to really engage in that journey is to commit to that. And that's something that most people would do in a monastery. Although I think it's something you can still aspire to living in a day-to-day -day life. So I hope this podcast has given you some perspective on perception. Aha. So the next podcast is going to be about the effects of CBD, cannabidiol, on chronic inflammatory illness. So uh, maybe I'll also include how CBD can really help people with a mindfulness practice. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I'm curious about comments or questions. And uh, you can get those to me through the Fusion Health Radio page on Facebook, I think is the best way right now. I hope you're having a really great day, and I wish you well, and uh, hopefully I'll see you or chat with you in the next podcast. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.